G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, all eyes have been on China. Beijing's grown increasingly belligerent and menacing under President Xi Jinping. Well, China is engaging in a massive military build-up, including building bases in the South China Sea and greatly enhancing its cyber warfare capabilities. It's taken the COVID-19 pandemic to begin waking up Australians as to how easily our supply chains could be cut in the event of a major regional conflict. So where is Australia's defence preparedness at? There are some suggestions that our defence forces are undermanned and under-equipped. In a major conflict, there is a suggestion that Australia would grind to a halt just three months into a major conflict. Well, our special guest today says there is an urgent need in Australia to build industries for jobs and for national security. Patrick J. Byrne is National President of the National Civic Council. And you might remember the National Civic Council founded back in the 1940s by B.A. Santa Maria, a long history of a conservative voice on social issues. And Patrick has co-authored a 12-page report addressed to policymakers and dealing with issues around manufacturing. Patrick J. Byrne, welcome along to 2020. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on, Neil. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Let's start with a big and broad and perhaps general insight from you, Patrick. Uh, You know, about Australia's preparedness for possible conflict, where do you think we're at? Well, uh, Neil, over the last couple of years, there's been two big reports done. One in uh, 2019 for the Defence Department, looking at um, our strategic needs in that would we would need in times of a crisis, be it a pandemic, ironically that happened about 12 months later, uh, or in the case uh, of a defence crisis. And there was a second report just recently by RAND Australia looking at Australia's overall what they call total defence mobilisation preparedness. And both of them said, um, while in some ways we're on a bit of a right track, We've really got a long way to go to be prepared for any sort of major conflict. And last year was a bit of a test for us because with the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, suddenly many of our supply chains were challenged, uh, not in a military sense, but through shortages. And for example, last year, the we've found ourselves uh, short of many medical important medical supplies, including uh, important uh, drugs and so on. But it's really a lot more than that that would be under threat, uh, a lot more than the shortage of toilet paper and so on, if we were found ourselves uh, in a major regional conflict or as collateral damage in a major regional conflict. So these two reports have been quite important for starting to really wake up Australians, who I think are concerned 
but still lacking sort of knowledge and understanding of where to go and what we've got to do. Um, and I think the government's also, in many ways, still got a long way to go before they come to grips with the real depth of what we've, we have got to do in this country to prepare ourselves uh, in the event of either another pandemic or something like a regional conflict. Patrick, let's talk about your connectedness here to some of the insights into what might be going on at higher levels, uh, the way that you know those in our Defence Department uh, may be planning for horror scenarios uh, that would keep us all uh, up at night. Uh, but last year, you had a uh, you had a, uh, a National Civic Council conference, and you were dealing with these sorts of issues. And you had great input coming from people at high levels talking about Australia's preparedness. Give us some insights into what gets the ball rolling in your thinking about these issues. Um, well, most people think of defence firstly and, f- and foremostly in terms of our military and what they can do to either de- deter or defeat an aggressor. And certainly that is the, if you like, the pointy end of defence. Um, and there's a whole discussion go- you know, that needs to be had in terms of what we need in terms of defence um, preparedness for the most likely scenarios we'd face in, in what are our core threats, in other words, that we face in the future and what sort of military equipment we need. And I must say, I think Greg Sheridan has been very much on the ball in the Australian on this, and he spoke at our national conference on it, along with uh, uh, Brigadier General Spaulding, retired from the US military. And both of them had a similar theme, that we have to have, um, firstly, the ability to seriously deter and blunt an enemy so that they actually don't get to our shores or create serious damage. And secondly, we have to have the resilience to survive any sort of um, any sort of assault and remain um, uh, resilient and capable of still keeping our economy turning over. And at both on both sides, on both points, the Australia has still got a very long way to go. So that's a broad introduction to it. In other words, you know, you've got to have not only um, forward defence capability, you've also got to have resilience at home, and that means having the industrial capacity to keep our economy turning over. And, of course, what we noticed last year uh, very significantly was, even just in a pandemic, how easily our supply chains can be disrupted. So I think that gives a bit of an introduction to it. In your white paper, you are calling for Australia to declare the strategic industries that are needed both to defend the nation and to ensure economic survival and sovereignty in the face of an international crisis. So you're, you're taking those, uh, those two dimensions. And uh, when you say uh, declaring the strategic industries, you've clearly got some in mind. Yes, it's very important that we have what they call resilience in the case of a conflict. That is, assuming your supply chains are cut, you're going to have a manufacturing industries that are actually capable of then continuing to uh, function here and supply just basic things where, for example, fuel, um, defence products, medical supplies, uh, transportation equipment, machine tools, and for all that you need metals processing and advanced chemicals industries. Um, you need a resilient telecommunications network. You know, you can't afford to have it degrade because you don't have enough microprocessors to keep it running. 
Um, similarly, you need to have your agricultural products still coming, getting to the cities, and for that you need your fuel supplies, and overall you need your electricity industry uh, to be able to keep functioning, and likewise you can't afford to have it degrade because of lack of supplies that you may otherwise, um, at the moment, have to depend on from overseas in order to uh, keep even the electricity, the lights on, so as to speak, and your industries turning. Now, if you can't do that, then um, this 2019 defence report, trying to work through such a scenario, um, it said that literally within a couple of months, you could have a, uh, many of your uh, um, utilities degrade, your fuel supplies run short, and you'd be in a very serious situation. Now, the problem for Australia is, um, after about 50 years of what I call fundamentalist economic thinking, that has, uh, we have run down our national industries to the point that we're down to about 5.8% of the economy. Now, compared to other countries in a similar size facing um, that have worked through this sort of scenario of what they'd face in a crisis, their industries are like 12 to 15% of their economy. So, for example, we've lost the car industry, and that is an enormous supplier of products, not only for the car industry, but capable of supplying many other sorts of products. So <clears throat> the problem then is um, if you don't have those industries functional here, you're then dependent on supply chains to be able to, to get them here. In World War II, uh, Australia was still had a substantial industrial base and the government was able to quickly get some of our industrial leaders to mobilise that industrial base in order to uh, effectively not only expand our defence defence industries, but also to keep all the other industries that we needed going. And similarly in the United States, um, America has a much larger industrial base, even though it's got a lot of rust bucket states, it's suffered from a lot of loss of industry too. And the government is capable through its uh, Defence Industries Act of being able to uh, say to industries in emergency, uh, even in natural disasters like they've faced in recent years from uh, huge cyclones or typhoons and so on hitting uh, the United States, to mobilise those industries very quickly to supply the products that uh, are needed uh, to keep the economy uh, functioning. So we're, we've got a problem in the sense that while we'd like to be in a situation where we can suddenly mobilise and become Fortress Australia, cut off if need be and still function, our industries are so run down that we really have, have got a major job in rebuilding them. Uh, and one of the problems I think we've got is we've had, 50, after 50 years of basically seeing industries close down and move offshore, um, we're now faced with a situation where we've got to rebuild them and do them quickly. But we don't have a lot of experienced uh, either bureaucrats or politicians uh, who have had the experience of being able to actually go out and help rebuild industries. And they've been more in the, in the job of seeing them shift offshore or close down. So we are starting from a long way behind, but we have to do it. And hence our proposal that we put forward last year uh, which is to double our manufacturing industry by 2035 with a whole series of policies in place to actually make that happen. 
but particularly focus on building what we call strategic industries, those that would you need in times of a crisis to become, uh, if you shut off from the rest of the world because your supply chains, chains are cut, to be able to uh, keep this economy going. I well, hope that makes a bit of sense. <laughs> it, look, it does, and uh, it'll it'll mean we'll need to listen afresh uh, to this on the podcast later to take in all the details. <laughs> but what you're talking about is our capacity to rebuild industries that we have seen in Australia, but now are very run down. A lot of people will say, Patrick, well, uh, you know, on our own we might be very small, but don't we rely on our allies to come to our support? But these sorts of things, I guess, are things that are homegrown that will be in demand because other big allies may be under their own pressures in the event of a conflict. What are your thoughts here for the idea that we might think, oh, we'll just put our hand up and our allies will come to our support? Um, Well, I think there's been an attitude in Australia for a long time. We'll always be able to rely on the Americans. And the Americans... Uh, uh, our great ally and I'm sure they will in some most instances come to assistance but the scenarios that have been looked at by various uh, military people in recent times say well let's just work through this and if there was a, a major confrontation for example with China over Taiwan for example um, would the Americans actually win now if they didn't then we stand alone. And up until recent times, I think most people have said, well, you know, the Americans would win. They're the strongest force in the world. But their forces now are run down by about 30% compared to their peak in the post-Cold War period. There has been a big rundown of the American military. So we don't know whether they would um, come out on top in such a conflict. Um, And therefore, we don't know if we can rely on them. I was looking back recently over uh, some of the defence discussion papers over the last uh, 20 years or so, and if you go back to around about 2000, one of those discussion papers was saying there was no foreseeable threat. But since about 2016, there has been a growing awareness that um, the rules, that, that the global situation had now changed and that there are broader, uh, more sobering assessments of um, what we could face in the future. The problem with that view up until that time of no foreseeable threat is, well, threats are never usually foreseeable. They happen rather suddenly. And I think this is where Australia has been very short-sighted in the past, even though I think governments have woken up uh, in very recent times and are taking a lot of significant steps, but still not enough to really get us to the point where if we were alone, would we be able to actually win and then survive as a effective, you know, functioning country? And that's the scenario you're aware you've always got to plan for the worst, even if you're hoping for the best. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Patrick J. Byrne. He's National President of the National Civic Council. And we're talking about Australia's preparedness if there is a possible conflict in the rise of communist China. 
Uh, I wonder whether, uh, Patrick, just, just to, uh, to spend a few moments just reflecting on a Christian angle on what we're talking about today. Some people will be thinking, uh, you know, is there a Christian angle here? Shouldn't we just be focusing on those things that are a part of evangelism and mission? Uh, is there a Christian way of thinking about the, the, the possibilities that are ahead? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think there's a couple of aspects to that. One is people should understand that, com- that communist China under Xi Jinping uh, is a totalitarian state. They are suppressing religion and my- all re- religions and minorities in China. For example, on the February the 1st this year, uh, the government stipulated that religious groups should follow the leadership of the Communist Party persist in the direction of this, of uh, <clears throat> syn- synchronising religion with the socialist values of the, of the country. But it goes further than that. They have been uh, arresting religious leaders, closing churches, and it is now believed even Christians are following in uh, the fate of uh, the Uyghurs and some of them are being put into uh, re-education camps and so on. They have pursued a policy of uh, suppression of Falun Gong, not only imprisoning them, but oftentimes executing Falun Gong members for organ harvesting, uh, for the sale of their organs to people wanting new heart or liver, whatever. Uh, It has been brutal what they've been doing to a whole range of minority groups and religious groups um, um, <clears throat> across the whole of the um, country of China. The second, so, so we are dealing with a country that's not fitting into the rules-based order, either on you know human rights or, or economics. Um, that was there was a belief after the end of Soviet communism that you could that the West could go in and appease China. Uh, help it develop and it would slowly evolve into a Western-style democracy with human rights and so on. It's it's actually gone in the opposite direction. It's used the advantage that the West has given it to develop its economy uh, to an enormous extent. I mean, really, they couldn't have developed the West, their economy to the extent they have, uh, particularly without trade and technology transfer from the United States and the United States companies moving into China to produce. Um, but it's gone in the opposite direction. Uh, and they even have a social credit system whereby um, they have a surveillance of their population using facial recognition and so on to um, give social credits or demerits to people uh, and rank them um, according to what their rights will be. I mean, this is, this is an horrendous interference in the privacy and in the freedoms uh, of the Chinese people. Now, that's one aspect of it. I mean, we've got to understand what we're dealing with here. Um, and that's got worse in recent times, by the way, as we've seen with their military build-up and with what they're doing in Hong Kong and shutting down the um, uh, democracy movement there and local newspapers. I think the second aspect is people say, you know, it shouldn't be Christians seeking peace and always attempting to avoid war. Well, I agree. I think the first priority in terms of defence and foreign affairs is to avoid war. Uh, To do that, however, in the face of a belligerent country uh, or a belligerent government like uh, the Beijing government, 
you have to approach it realistically. And the best way to deter China from aggression is to be strong enough to the point where they say, well, it's not worth taking on a fight. For example, to, um, to seize power over Taiwan. Uh, or in then in terms of collateral damage, if they did go into a conflict with the Americans over Taiwan, they would certainly be looking to hit American facilities in Australia. And if we had a sufficient defence here, particularly missile defence, long-range missile defence, which the government is starting to look at and procure some serious missiles, then you want them to get... You want to get to the point where they say, well, it's not worth really trying to take on Australia... Uh, because it would just we would it would cost us too much in terms of the loss of our own military forces. So we have to first understand what the um, potential threats are. We then have to say and we have to understand the nature of the regime, and then we have to say, all right, how do we prevent a situation like that that could get us into a serious conflict from uh, impinging on our shores? I hope that makes a bit of sense. You know, what we're talking about here, I guess, is a battle of values because the Chinese communist values, as you've just demonstrated, are very, very far removed from the way that a Christianized Western set of values actually develops. And so the idea of uh, who are your friends and who are your enemies, uh, those who have same values are going to be friends and those who have different values ultimately become enemies. There's a big issue in the middle of all of this though too and I'll get your thoughts here Patrick because here in Australia while we've had this wonderful foundation of Christian values that have given to us what everyone's accepting are Australian values, we're very quickly moving away from those now as we become a more secularised state in actual fact a little bit more like china in some sense but what are your thoughts here um yeah i think the difficult one of the biggest difficulties in getting um what you might call as they talk about in the defense preparedness total defense preparedness is the divisions now within australian society uh at a whole range of levels and i think they're not just Political, they are also, as you say, um, moral and ethical because we have become a much more, we are becoming a much more secularised society. So, for example, how does that play out in the context of what we're talking about today? Well, you've had a preparedness of uh, many Australian um, companies and even universities and so on to um, uh, accept money or to deal with China and. Uh, to tr- not only to trade with them, but to accept Confucius in- Institutes and so on in here, accept research grants, um, and to basically follow the dollar rather than uh, what we might call in patriotism, love of one's country, and say, no, because on principle, we, we're not going to allow that sort of influence in here. So it becomes, and, and that's right up to the level of government. We've had two government, state governments in Australia, uh, so I had memorandums of understanding for the Belt and Road projects uh, with China, and the federal government has now intervened to through legislation to start overturning those uh, agreements. So when you have such division within the, within the country, it's hard to get a unified approach to actually deal with the threats that uh, are potential threats that we are facing out there. Patrick, I'll jump in here and uh, because we're about to go to news and we'll continue our conversation after the news. 
Uh, Patrick, before we just move on, though, uh, let's take a call. Uh, David's been waiting patiently in Perth. David, uh, just welcome along. What are your thoughts for our conversation? Good morning, both you. Yes, a very important conversation. I would like to harken back to the beginning of the destruction in our industry, um, back to the Lima Declaration in the 70s, which harkened all the destruction of our industries by that policy and the harkening to actually cancelling that policy entirely so we can actually build our local industries back. That's the reason why um, we lost so many of our industries and put them offshore in the first place. And the, David, uh, it's idea, not an idea. especially clear line. Uh, what you're saying is that uh, some of these issues developed as far back as the 1970s. Uh, a thought or two here, Patrick, for David? Uh, David, um, there's a m- number of reasons it's developed. Australia, like um, Australia, have adopted very uh, what I call uh, fundamentalist free trade policies going back 50 years ago. And in doing so, it dismantled, it led to the dismantling of many of our industries or the shifting of those industries offshore. So we're now about half the size, our industrial base is about half the size of comparable nations around the world. And the recent RAND report looked at countries like Switzerland, uh, Singapore, uh, Finland, and uh, I think it was Norway, and their industrial base is about twice the size of theirs uh, in the context of the, their economy. So how do we get back to it? In the paper we produced, um, we suggested we've got a double manufacturing by 2035. One of the key ways to do it is to declare what are your strategic industries. Now, all our trade agreements uh, under the WTO, all our trade agreements allow for strategic industries to be exempt to be exempt from those agreements so if we said for example that we wanted to have a substantial uh, pharmaceutical industry here or we wanted to build uh, or more missiles and defense equipment and transport equipment here and that was strategically important to australia we can declare those as strategic industries and in doing so we have the ability to go and create those industries, put what subsidies we like, put what restrictions we need on uh, perhaps competitive imports that might undermine those industries here. We have the ability to build those industries. So it's very important uh, to have for the government to declare what the strategic art industries are that we need to build. You know, they're putting out hundreds of billions of dollars in a very in a broad seeding sort of way at the moment to get industries going but they need to be much more focused in what we actually need uh, for the what we call fortress australia in times of a conflict that could keep this country functioning so the key thing is to do that and for that we've suggested i think we need a strategic industries department a super department that sits beside treasury and other key departments but really uh, sits above them in terms of prioritising what needs to be done here. So there's a way to do it, but you, you have to declare what your strategic industries are. David, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You can respond to on our Facebook question today at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Before we move on, of course, you know, we're talking about the rise of 
a different type of China than we might have been used to. The idea of wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, using trade as a coercive weapon. Uh, on earlier programs, we've talked about the grey zone intimidation uh, that we've uh, been able to uh, identify even with armed fishing boats in Australian waters. Uh, there's all sorts of posturing that's coming from China. And we might even ask about our own Defence Minister now. Of course, uh, Peter Dutton uh, elevated to that position. And we might ask, has he got what it takes uh, to be able to uh, restore and rebuild these industries that you're talking about, Patrick. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the Honourable Peter Dutton and uh, his capacities here? Oh, I think he's very capable. He's the most capable they've had in the Defence Ministry for a long time. And he's particularly well focused on getting the defence um, preparedness done, defence preparedness particularly that the armed forces. Um, I think that the whole issue of building the industries and getting total defence preparedness, and by that I mean, for example, getting our key institutions uh, up to scratch in terms of the resistance and being able to uh, fend off cyber warfare, for example, I think that requires a broader approach than even just the Defence Minister. It requires a number of other key ministries to be involved. Uh, and that's part of the reason I said I think we need a, a super department of defence industries, uh, because it's not just building them, it, it's also protecting them uh, in a whole variety of ways, economically, from being you know, subverted or taken overseas. You know, we've built some great industries here, but they end up going offshore. We've got to keep them here. Um, you've got to have the policies to defend them from cyber warfare and those grey zone attacks and so on. So it requires more than just the Defence Minister to be involved in this. Now, fabulous Christian foundation to the National Civic Council, going right back to B.A. Santa Maria, this idea of anti-communist activism and, uh, and those Christian foundations that have been part of your organisation. Some people are probably saying, well, you know, where's the substance of what Christian thought and activism can bring to a debate like this? But you're not just calling for billions of dollars to be spent here redirecting things, Patrick. You're talking about a trillion-dollar plan to uh, to build manufacturing to double the current production by 2035. This gets into this idea of setting the the, the navigation direction, the policy direction for where Australia will be in the next 15 years. What are your thoughts here about the policy ways that things have to change? Um, I think the policy ways have to change because we've been in a mindset for about 50 years. And that mindset has basically led to the rundown, rundown of industries. So, as I said, yes, a trillion dollars sounds like a lot, but the government's actually, if you look at its overall policy uh, plans, it's around $2 trillion involved to try and stimulate the economy and do various things, defend, building defence and so on, uh, in, this post -co in this COVID period, where suddenly there's been a, a realisation we've got to hell do a hell, hell of a lot more. So in a sense, the government is already committed to a lot of money. The question is, it needs to be focused, uh, not just scatter-seeded out there to see what will grow up in terms of industry. It needs to be focused on what we actually need. Now, I think it needs not only government input of funds, I think they need to be encouraging uh, private equity, uh, the super funds to 
invest in our future, but also a development bank. Um, a development bank is capable of doing long-term patient capital, for the, particularly for the development of infrastructure and industries that are needed. And the advantage of that is that it's off the government books. So it's not running up huge debts, but it looks at 10, 20, 30, 40 years uh, of returns on investment. And it's the investment, in other words, pays for its, itself over time and doesn't become that sort of burden on the taxpayer when the government decides instead to go and spend a trillion dollars and then the taxpayer eventually has to fork out his taxes in order to pay it back. So there are ways and means of doing this uh, that are a lot more creative than I think what the government is looking at at the moment. Taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Uh, Brett is in WA. Hello, Brett. Welcome along. G'day. How are you going? Good, Brett. What are your thoughts? Um, well, the thoughts are um, what the fear is of China is communism. And I'm just wondering... Um, with the act of uh, the response to this COVID, um, it looks very communistic in the in the form of shutdowns, uh, lockdowns, sorry, social distancing, wearing masks, all those sorts of things. And it has been ongoing, I think, to uh, allow this sort of system to come into play. And one of the things I think would help with our defence would be to arm the public. Now, in the past, the... Uh, um, the government is trying to do in America and I think it will cause issues in the future in regards to uh, other countries' invasion. Uh, Brett, interesting, interesting thought there and I think it's around uh, gun control and uh, ever since the massacre in Tasmania there uh, and uh, John Howard leading the charge there to uh, to disarm Australians uh, with automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. Uh, an interesting thought there. Uh, any thoughts here for Brett on that sort of idea of rearming Australia, Patrick? Well, two things. I did put that similar sort of question to Jim, Senator Jim Molan recently. And he said, look, I'm not particularly in favour of arming Australians. The Americans are heavily armed, but um, in reality, it also they've got some of the highest murder rates in the world and both and accident rates in the world as well. I'm not sure that dispersing weapons amongst the population actually becomes the serious deterrent. The real problem, if I can put it slightly differently, is if you go to the core threat that we're facing, China has, uh, in the last 20 years, built thousands of missiles capable of going a 1,000 kilometres or more that are capable of either reaching America's shores or hitting American um, uh, naval fleets in, in the Pacific at a long-range distance. And those uh, that that formulation of the use of a huge number of missiles is really this, the, the major threat that would face Australia. And what we need is a forward defence posture that gives us counter-missile capability uh, on a very large scale. Now, as Greg Sheridan has pointed out in The Australian, he's the foreign editor there, Australia has lots of little silver buttons, that is, lots of very good things in defence, but we've only got a small number of them. We've got some very effective missiles and we're going to get some more, but we don't just need a few. 
we need a couple of thousand of them. And when you've got a couple of thousand of those, that's how you put in a major... That's the sort of deterrence that needs to be put in place in order to deter a major uh, enemy or a major potential threat from a country like China. When you've got that in place, then you prevent them actually getting to our shores and you have put the effective deterrence in place. I hope that makes a bit of sense. Thank you so much to Brett for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Let's take another call. Philip is in Melbourne. Hello, Philip. Welcome. For your call, one Philip, you need to turn your radio down in the background and uh, and uh, you're on the air. Philip, what are your thoughts? What is the uh, nuclear uh, energy, power and also defence could be very helpful. Good thought, Phil. Uh, your thoughts here, Patrick. Uh, nuclear uh, power generation and nuclear weapons for defence. Australia doesn't have those. What are your thoughts here? Um, we've been a long-time advocate of um, nuclear power, and I think nuclear power would be uh, a great advantage to Australia. The technology involved is quite extensive. It would take some years to develop, although there are now uh, modular small power plants being uh, on the cards to be built. I think there's some contracts out. I'm not sure they've actually been built as yet. And uh, I I think that would also allow you to disperse your uh, energy sources around Australia for defence reasons as well, when you can use small modular units. So you could still have a, you know, whereas if you've got big centralised power stations, they're more vulnerable. Um, I think another advantage of it is if to develop that technology meant, would mean that by the time we build our submarines, if Australia really uh, bit the bullet, it could probably put some of those that nuclear technology into uh, submarine, the submarines we're building and have nuclear-powered su- su- submarines. In terms of energy, the lowest-cost energy is still coal. And... Uh, I don't know whether we're capable of getting ourselves to the point of rebuilding uh, low supercritical coal-fired power stations. I hope we are, because if you want to rebuild your industries, you really need the cheapest energy possible, and that is the, still the best source, because you just dig it out of the ground, ground and burn it. Whereas uh, nuclear has a lot of processing uh, through to the nu- in the nuclear cycle and, and disposal, then a lot of time, a lot of energy in terms of disposal as well. Um, in terms of nu- nuclear weapons, um, uh, I'm not averse to them. I think we've got, but I think we've got a long way to go to even get there. I think we need the nuclear power before we get to the point of. Uh, nuclear weapons. And the difficulty there, though, is uh, there are nuclear non-proliferation treaties. I'm sure I'm pretty sure Australia is a signatory to them. So I think you'd have a lot of difficulties there. And I think that's probably where we're still going to have to rely on the Americans. Phil, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. There's some responses to our Facebook question today. Is there a Christian way of thinking about Australia's preparedness for possible conflict in the rise of communist China? Franco says... China has threatened Australia to blow it off the map if it's if it contains continues its alliance with the USA. It's an interesting point to make. Mike says, "Pray that President Xi Jinping 
has a similar experience to Nebuchadnezzar, who came to believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, We can't put it beyond the possibility that some major miraculous thing might happen like that. Uh, But your thoughts here, Patrick, because that might be an ideal situation. Uh, There's this other idea of the posturing that happens one way and the other too, and the deterrence idea. Uh, What are your thoughts for, for someone like Mike who might say, well, hey, wouldn't it be great? if uh, there was a major encounter for the Chinese leader. But uh, that, that, that perhaps could happen. You never know. Well, I think you've got two points there. The first one is I simply go back to the point in terms of um, deterrence. The stronger your deterrence, uh, the less likely you are to face uh, an aggressor you know, heading towards our shores or trying to do serious damage here. Um, yeah, Christianity is on the rise very significantly in China. Um, not only through the mainstream churches, but in a, um, just as a result of uh, people picking up uh, the scriptures uh, through the internet and various other means. And who knows where it will all end up in that sense. Um, I'll just say one other thing too. China is facing another problem, and that is um, its ageing population. It has suddenly woken up that its one-child policy is now going to become a millstone around its neck because uh, it is going to limit its ability to even um, uh, to continue the endless expansion of its military um, because of the cost it's going to incur of looking after the, uh, the very rapidly ageing population. And that's going to require a lot more manpower, manpower that the military may have to sacrifice. So... China's got its own internal problems in that way, but I think we all pray for a change of heart and perhaps a revelation to people like Xi Jinping um, and conversion. As you say, ageing populations, but hearkening back to what we were discussing a little earlier, the idea that communists think very differently about the value of human life than what we do here in our Western foundations, which have been Christian foundations. We might talk about them rapidly deteriorating, but those foundations are still there. In China, though, uh, they've got a history where they can uh, reflect on uh, the Cultural Revolution and the deaths of tens of millions of people and really because there are some different ways of thinking about the value of life uh, that come from a communist foundation. Any thoughts around that? Because, uh, you know, they're going to deal with these things. We might think they'll deal with them one way, but uh, the history would say that communism deals with these things in a very, very brutal way. Yeah, communist China, like Soviet Russia, has a terrible terrible human rights history. Uh, Every time there's a reassessment of the deaths under communism, uh, both Soviet and Chinese, the numbers go up and they're up up around the 100 million mark. Um, Terrible history of uh, persecution of those who don't toe the line of the Communist Party. And while people in the West thought um, after the end of the Soviet Union that we could see China, uh, we could cultivate China and see it respect human rights and, as I said before, evolve towards a democracy. That simply has not happened. It's actually gone the opposite direction and the crackdowns now on religious, on Christians and all faiths in China uh, is now you know something terrib- terrible to see. So um, 
Yeah, it's it's a totally different way of thinking. Can I just add one little point there? What's very interesting about the human the most prominent human rights activists in China and of the Chinese human rights activists who've left and are now in the West, many of them are Christian. They are people who understanding from understand from Christianity that we are all created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore. And from that, we've developed the whole concept of universal human rights. Um, and it's not surprising when you think about it, uh, I had to think about it a couple of years ago, that so many of the human rights activists in China uh, are actually Christian. It is a powerful point to make, and we have run out of time. Uh, so much more we could discuss here. But, uh, Patrick, is there a way that listeners today can access your white paper to explore some more. I mean, some of these very practical and uh, industry-oriented ideas about where Australia should be heading, defence ideas. If I give people the ncc.org.au website, is your white paper paper accessible there for people who go to the National Civic Council website? Yes, it's accessible there and it's free. So if you go there and type in the search engine just white paper, you'll find it comes up pretty quickly and uh, you can download it and read it. Okay, Patrick J. Byrne, who's co-author of uh, that 12-page report addressed to policymakers. He's co-written that as National President of the National Civic Council with Craig L. Milne, who is from the Australian Productivity Council, and Colin Teese, a former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Trade. So ncc.org.au to access that white paper and uh, take in some of the things that are being proposed when it comes to a way forward in Australia's preparedness for what might happen in the event of a major regional conflict, and we're talking a war with China. Patrick J. Byrne, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.